air much of the time. So, um, as we begin this morning, let's do a quick review. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is highlighted as the Messiah, the promised king who's fulfilling the Old Testament promises and ushering in the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching and healing, offering new life and restoration wherever he goes. And the theme continues um, to, to be revealed um, throughout these passages that we're looking at this morning. What I want you to, to note is that Matthew 13 is the turning point of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the third of the five teaching discourses that are included in the book where Jesus teaches in parables. And these stories highlight what Jesus has been doing so far in his ministry. And then he's also pointing ahead to what is to come. The parable of the sower reveals all the different responses to Jesus' invitation to be part of, to the people, to be part of his new kingdom. And Jesus comes bringing a sword, right? Dividing the ones that choose to leave everything behind and follow him from those who choose to rule their own lives, right? And, re and reject Jesus as their king. We find this depicted in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And Jesus is, is also highlighting that there will come a day when he will judge and set things right. And the kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed that grows into a big tree. It's like an explosion happening in slow motion. It's growing, but slowly, as Jesus turns people's lives upside down, one person at a time, through his mercy and his healing, and his kingdom is not like the Jews had expected. Jesus has not come to sit on a throne in a palace. He is not leading a revolt against the Romans. He reigns with mercy and compassion and righteousness. And then at the end of chapter 13, we saw how Jesus re was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And here at the beginning of our text for this morning in chapter 14, we see how Jesus withdraws from Galilee after receiving the news of John the Baptist's death. We know as we look at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 14 that John the Baptist was the herald of Jesus, the promised king, and he had spoken out against Herod, and he had fallen in love with his brother's wife and they were divorced and he was now living with Herodias who had been his brother Philip's wife and they had not been happy to hear that John was correcting <laughs> their behavior and so they had him imprisoned and then Herodias daughter dances somewhat inappropriately I would think before Herod and at that, he says that he will give her whatever she wishes. And she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod wants to save face in front of his party guests, so he does. He grants her wish. So here we're seeing a great contrast between Herod, who is a weak king and will do whatever he can to gain power, 
In contrast, Jesus is the true king of Israel. He is a humble healer who faithfully follows his father and is, is willing to lay down his life for sinful humanity. With this news, we see that the shadow of death is cast over Jesus' life, just like it had been from the start, right? When another king had tried to take his life. Jesus is very clearly on the path that will lead to the cross. He will die to bring us life, and Herod will play a part in this. Then in verses 13 to 21, we see how Jesus feeds the 5,000. If you open your Bibles, will you read with me? I'm in chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So we find here at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is seeking solitude. He's wanting to get away and have time with the Father. But the crowds continue to follow him. And what does he do when they flock to him? He responds with compassion and he brings healing to the sick. And then we see him revealed as the shepherd king. In the Old Testament, shepherd meant king. It was an image, imagery for a king. And just as the Lord had faithfully provided manna for the Israelites every day for 40 long years as they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate place, Jesus, here, in a new desolate place, provides bread for this crowd of possibly up to 10 to 15,000 Jewish people. He provides their daily bread. See, we're seeing him live out everything that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples can't even begin to envision what Jesus could do with this little tiny lunch <laughs> that would have been suitable for one, one or a few people. They want to send the people away. But Jesus, once again, commissions his disciples to join him in his ministry. And he says, you give them, give them something to eat. Bring me what you have. And so they bring their meager offering, this little tiny lunch. And Jesus invites them to be part of an impossible task so that they 
can learn to depend on him, on his power and trust in his provision. I love that they were, they all ate, every single person there ate to the full. They were all satisfied and there are still leftovers. Now, I don't know, at my house, people tend to skip the leftovers, but I think there's an important thing to notice here. The basket, the word for basket used here, was kind of a lunch-sized basket. And there are 12 lunches left over just for provision for the 12 disciples. Jesus had told them, right, as they were to do ministry, they were to trust in his provision. And of course, the 12 disciples and the 12 baskets echoes the 12 tribes of Israel. We're seeing Jesus here as the perfect provider, the good shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, verses 14 to 15, it had been foretold, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights shall be their grazing land. They they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I love the line in our study guide this week that said, we can trust Jesus as our compassionate rescuer, healer, and provider. He's a good shepherd. And I think the next time that we are in a situation where we think the need is too great, there's nothing that we could possibly do to make a difference, would we be the ones that just bring the little that we have and offer offer it to Jesus? Ask him to bless it and multiply it and that we may give whatever we have, whether it's time or talents or treasure or prayers, whatever it may be, that the Lord may bless it so that we can bring his blessing in this world. I do this every single time when I get up to teach. I think, oh Lord, it's just a little meager offering. I wouldn't get up here if I didn't trust him to work through his word to speak to each heart in this room. I think of this last weekend in the midst of a full life. um, I planned a little get together for seven of my high school girlfriends. And so it was just an offering of time and my life was full. You know how it is when you're trying to leave to go out of town, there's a long list to do. (laughs) And I was just had been praying and praying, Lord, please bless this time. I don't know that I have much to offer, but I did, we carved out the time to be together. And the things that I saw the Lord do this last weekend, as these women gathered who who met in 1980, (laughs) it's amazing to see how the Lord can bless a meager offering. And then we see, as we move on, Jesus walking on water. We continue in chapter 14 with verse 22. 
Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I! Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Once again, we see Jesus wanting to be alone with his father. And he goes up on the mountain to meet with him, just as Moses did. And in the middle of this storm, he comes to his disciples, walking on the water. And when he says to them, it is I, it's the same wording for the I am name of God that had been revealed to Moses when he was at the burning bush. So Jesus is revealing that he is the Lord of Israel who works wonders. The Lord who had parted the sea and saved his people when he brought them out of Egypt. Psalm 77, 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And Isaiah 43 Verses 1 to 3, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And I haven't included this in your notes, but it was in your study, I believe, Isaiah 41, 10. It's a good one to memorize. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you see how Jesus is fulfilling all that had been foretold and promised? Just in this one passage here. It's interesting to think about the fact that Jesus sent his disciples out into the the lake, onto the lake, knowing that the storm would come. But he comes to them in their trouble. Are we ones that remember that Jesus is with us in the storms of our lives? 
Do we believe that he's bigger and stronger than any storm that we will face? Peter falls. He bravely goes out on the water to be with Jesus, but he falls because of his fear and doubt. Yet Jesus is right there to catch him. <laughs> this may be just the best, one of the best miracles of all. Tom Wright puts it this way, the moment when we are most strongly tempted to give up is probably the moment when, if we only knew it, help is just a step away. Jesus is near, ready to save us, ready to help us when we call out to him. And what is the disciples' response, the most appropriate response, but worship? And they proclaim, truly you are the Son of God. And this, they weren't speaking of the Son of God as we would see as part of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is once again a messianic term, speaking of the promised king in the royal line of David that had been foretold in the Old Testament. We see Jesus continuing to heal the sick he is a great healer. When the sick were brought to him, they implore him that they just might touch the fringe of his garment, right? His zizith, the fringe of his prayer shawl. And as many as touched it were made well. Jesus continues to reveal himself as the healer who can restore people, mind, body, and soul. We see Jesus speaking in chapter 15, once again addressing the religious traditions versus the commandments of God. We see how Jesus' commands overrule the traditions of men. And Jesus also addresses in verses 10 to 20 of chapter 15 what defiles a person. It's, what, it's not what they take into their bodies, not what they eat. It's not about all this clean and unclean ceremonial stuff that they're caught up in. But it's what's in our hearts. And Jesus makes it clear that it's our sin flows out of our hearts. And I'm grateful for the passage in our study that talked about how Jesus can tra transform our hearts, right? He gives us new hearts. And then we see the great faith of the Canaanite women in verses 21 to 28. The Canaanites were Israel's worst enemies in Old Testament times. She comes to Jesus crying out, Have mercy on me, son of David. Once again, the most beautiful prayer ever. This plea for mercy. And she sees him as the Messiah, calling him the son, the son of David. She kneels before Jesus and calls him Lord three times throughout their interaction. He lets her know that he's committed to reaching the Jews at this time, but she persists with him, and he honors her for her faith. I must mention here that when he speaks of the Gentiles as dogs, he is likely calling out the disciples for their prejudices, we know from all the other situations where we see Jesus speaking and behaving that he does not put people into categories like this at all. We see Jesus healing many and 
in this Gentile area, those that are healed, glorify the God of Israel as they see Jesus work. And then in verses 32 to 39, we see Jesus feeding another great crowd, a crowd of 4,000. This second miraculous feeding takes place in the area of the Decapolis, a Gentile area. And we find that there are seven large baskets left over. The wording for basket here is like a, a big, giant basket. And we know, we've talked about before, that the number seven symbolizes perfection or completion. And so these seven left over baskets remind us that Jesus gives more than enough. His blessing is overflowing and abundant and it's complete. And through the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, we see that Jesus came as the bread of life and offers this bread to all. In both of the feedings, we see Jesus taking the bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and then giving it to the disciples. And we will see him do this again at the Last Supper, where he will take the bread and give thanks for it and break it and give it out to the disciples, saying, This, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus himself is the bread of life broken and given to all. And the abundant life that he offers, that invitation is given to all. He brings life to those who trust in him. Then we see the Pharisees and Sadducees demanding a sign. These religious leaders travel from Jerusalem to seek out Jesus. So we're seeing this picture that, that the opposition of Jesus is growing. And the Pharisees and Sadducees always clashed with one another. But here they come together in order to oppose Jesus, to test him. Their hearts are hard. We see this because they're demanding a sign. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah, which Jesus is, once, is, is speaking of, his death and his burial for three days and then his, his resurrection life afterwards. We also see in verses 5 to 12, chapter 16, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven symbolizes sin. Here it's the false te teaching of the religious leaders. And Jesus says, oh, their lips speak of me, but, but their hearts are far from me. Once again, Jesus' kingdom is all about living in relationship with him as king and with God as father. And then we see that Jesus is the Messiah who, who reigns, not by exalting himself, not by grasping for power, but through suffering and sacrifice. In Caesarea Philippi, as Jesus is gathered with his disciples, Jesus asks them, who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? 
here in this pagan city that's full of temples to Caesar and Pan and other gods. It's here that Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's confession is the rock on which the church is built. Jesus is the Christ. And it's here that Jesus speaks of the church that will be to come. And he speaks of the keys of the kingdom that are given to Peter. He shall give entrance to the kingdom. And it's such in great contrast because of the religious leaders of the day were basically shutting everybody out, right? With all the, the burden of the law. And Jesus saying, oh, Peter, you're going to be the one to give entrance. And you see that in, in, in Acts when Peter boldly proclaims the invitation of Jesus. And then we find in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 16, Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So Jesus is further revealing his identity as the Messiah, that the Messiah has one, is one that has come to suffer and die, to pour out his life. Jesus is the suffering servant. Peter and all the disciples likely pictured the Messiah as a glorious king who would conquer the Romans and establish his throne in Jerusalem. But oh, his path, his rule, his reign is so different from the kings of this world. And Jesus is trying, he's trying to encourage them, to point them to what's ahead, trying to prepare them. And then he commands his disciples to keep quiet about his true identity. There had been so many before him, so-called messiahs, right? That had had followers, but then were caught by the authorities. And Jesus, the true messiah, is waiting on the Father's timing. He's following one step at a time as the Father leads him. And then we find in verses 24 to 28, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, follow me where I lead you. I'm heading to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. The Romans made a condemned man carry the crossbar to the place of execution. We'll see that. Jesus, that's what happens to Jesus. So the way of Jesus' kingdom is the way of the cross. John Stott, it says, denying ourselves, it's renouncing our right to go our own way. It's turning away from the idol of self-centeredness. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Early Christians were willing to die for the name of Jesus. And many around this world today are martyred because they will not renounce their Savior, Jesus. I think living in the place that we do today, this is hard. This is challenging for us. But Jesus makes it clear that his way is the way of self-giving love and self-emptying sacrifice. It's pouring out your life in response to what he has done for us, the grace and the new life that he's given to us, that is our response, the appropriate response, is to follow him and to give our lives back to him, pouring it out um, for the glory of God the Father. And we find that this path of self-denial and obedience is the way to true life. Nothing that we give up is greater than the reward, the life that Jesus gives to us. And then in chapter 17, let's look briefly at the transfiguration. And after Jesus, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them high, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. I wonder what they were saying. I wish we could know. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Peter, James, and John are the closest friends of Jesus, and they're privileged. Can you imagine being here, seeing Jesus in all of his true glory? Moses and Elijah were the only two men of the Old Testament who had spoken to God on Mount Sinai. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and together they represent the whole storyline of the whole Old Testament scriptures. And who is in the middle but Jesus? And it's this, Matthew is making it so clear. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. And Moses had gone up to the mountain to be with God, and when he came down, his face his countenance was glowing with the glory of God. Yet here, Moses gets to see Jesus <laughs> in all of his glory along with the disciples. He is the glorious one. And once again, we hear the voice of God speaking of his beloved son. And what do the disciples do? They're terrified to be in the presence of God. They fall on their faces. And Jesus tells them once again to wait, to tell others about this experience until after his resurrection. You have a few more things included in your notes there, but I just have a few questions for you as we finish our time today. 
I want to ask you if you're trusting in Jesus as your good shepherd, the one who rescues you, heals you, and provides for you. Are you offering the little bit that you have and saying, Lord, help me to somehow be involved in shepherding your sheep? Would you work through me? Would you do the impossible through me in situations where I have no idea what the solution might be? And are you following Jesus in the way, the lowly way of mercy and self-sacrifice, pouring your life out in response to what Jesus has done? And then also, how big is your God? He's big enough. Whatever storms you're facing, he's big enough, and he's right there, just a step away, ready to help. Blessings.